I'm Jacqueline Duget, and I'm the host of What is Black podcast, the podcast where we discuss topics important to raising healthy and thriving Black children and adolescents. Welcome to this episode of What is Black. Today's guests are Dr. Lon Ray Falusi and Dr. Lisa Varghese Kroll. Welcome, ladies. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thank doing you great. for having us. Oh, yes. I'm so excited to um, to have you as guests on the show today. Before we get started, I just wanted to give um, a brief um, brief bio of these wonderful, incredible, talented um, physicians. So Dr. Faluse is a, is a pediatrician um, in Washington, D.C., um, where she has practiced and taught primary care pediatrics for, for over 10 years. Her work is focused on ensuring that all children have the opportunity to reach their full potential, regardless of race, ethnicity, immigrant status, or socioeconomic status. And she's also a spokesperson for the American Academy of Pediatric and has lots of media, um, media experience and also um, does a lot of advocacy for, for children's, um, children's health and well-being. And of course, as a mom and parent of two girls, um, and Dr. Dr. Lisa Varghese Kroll is a rehabilitation medicine physician and also an experienced physician advisor serving hospitals across the country. She's also in the, um, based in the Washington, D.C. area and is passionate about educating physicians and the public about issues that affect us all. She's also um, a journalist um, and also experienced um, broadcaster and also um, as a wife and mom of two children. So again, welcome. You all bring such such great experiences um, to this topic that we're going to dis- discuss today. Um, and today we're going to focus on um, discussing immigrant health issues facing black and brown children and families. And I wanted to um, to start off the, the conversation by asking um, each of you all if you could share your work um, in immigrant health and how your personal experiences inform your work. Yeah, so I'm, I can go first. Um, so for both of us, I should say, um, Lisa and I are both immigrants ourselves. And I think for us, this is what sort of spurs some of our interests um, in this work. Um, for myself, I um, have been working clinically in immigrant communities for about 12 years. So since I finished my training, um, every place that I've worked at had a majority um, immigrant population, largely Spanish speaking, but very diverse, where I've had patients from West Africa, from the Caribbean, from Asia, really from everywhere. Uh, and seeing some of the special um you know, needs and interest of, of the immigrant population, I think has spurred me to do more advocacy, including legislative advocacy, um, working with the media, um, to make sure that children and families who have immigrated have the you know, rights and benefits that they need. And particularly that intersection of immigration and child health is where my passion is. And I've done some work, as you mentioned, with the American Academy of Pediatrics and um, with my work. Um, I think the key for me as we talk about these things, especially with, you know, advocacy and policy is that, you know, child health is really not a partisan issue. Um, and as fiery as a topic as immigration can be, we just have to remember that all kids need and deserve the same amount of safety and love and nutrition and all of those things that, that they all, all kids need. Right. I would echo everything that Lonre said. Um, as she said, we are, we are both immigrants. And I think, um, 
having been through that oneself, uh, even if, you know, we're all immigrants from different countries and continents, there is a, a thread of similarity that runs through that experience. And I think that you, uh, having been through that experience, have a very unique perspective on your new country in a way that um, people who have been there for generations may not have. And I think being able to see those things, sometimes uh, it provides a really, uh, a, a certain way that your work is informed. And no matter where you practice in the United States, if you're a physician, you are treating immigrants. We are a country of immigrants. And so exactly as Lonnery said, this is an issue that affects us all. Um, you know, no matter where we are in the political spectrum, I think that we would all agree that the country does better and we as humans do better when everyone has access to the same uh, resources and to good health. So, in your in your work, um, I'll, I'll ask um, Dr. Felice first um, regarding children's health. What what particular um, unique challenges have you found faced by um, immigrant children and immigrant parents? Yeah, thinking about my patients and even about some of the research that we've started doing, um, a lot of immigrant families are having a really difficult time right now um, where changes in policies or changes in access to certain resources have made it um, pretty difficult. So families have fears about separation, right? Um, so there's definitely family separation that made headline news over the last couple of years, but even families who have been in the U.S. for years continue to have those fears. Even those who have legal status, because as I said, policies are changing frequently and they're not always sure what tomorrow will bring. Um, there's also a lot of confusion. Um, I see uh, kids who are maybe too young to fully express their emotions in you know, very sort of logical way or very clearly as an adult would, but rather their bodies feel it. So they end up having headaches and stomach aches and or are not doing well in school and, you know, physical and emotional disturbances, um, which is so it really does impact kids and in a way that is um, really tangible um, beyond sort of policy that might seem pretty abstract. Um, we also know that families who are immigrant families are more likely to live in poverty or experience food insecurity or housing insecurity, which can also impact their physical and mental health. And their families are also seeking asylum, um, who may be still dealing with the effects of the trauma that they experience in their home country or trauma um, that they experienced even after arriving to the U.S. Um, and, you know, as Lisa was saying, that's why it's important for physicians to really think about this. We, we all in some way will be treating immigrant families um, and being trained in trauma-informed care, being able to recognize the red flags that children may show uh, when they experience extreme stress, um, children and adults, um, the things that they can show. But they all, we also, I think, just have to also recognize family strengths. I don't want to be so negative or focused just on <laughs> deficits, right? But, you know, immigrant families are more likely to have um, two-parent families and extended family members who involved or are involved in the child's life, for example, and that's you know, extra support for kids that they need as they're growing and developing. Yeah, and... Oh. 
No, no, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say from um, from a rehabilitation medicine perspective, uh, I, I see adults, but um, you know, we see that these issues, if left unaddressed in childhood, have have long standing consequences throughout their lives and also for their families. So, you know, we see that people uh, many times families that are immigrating may have a lack of prenatal care or lack of adequate nutrition, depending on their time of immigration and or their access to health care in their home countries. Um, and that can lead to, you know, things like low birth weight with higher infection risks and lower IQs. And as adults, those things persist. Um, some, you know, some congenital abnormalities or birth defects, they may spur immigration if there are cultural barriers to care for those diagnoses or, or if a one child rule means that parents will have no one to care for them in old age. Um, so it may be that the desire for rehabilitation is actually something that spurs pa- uh, parents and families to come. And by the time they come, their children may actually be in their late teens or adults. And so we find that, you know, their their concern is, have they lost their window for rehabilitation? And that's something that often is unique to a family that's only now arriving rather than one that's been here. I just wanted to touch on a point that I think you, you all both shared, the impact on how potentially how older children, you know, I would say maybe like middle, middle aged children, um, young adults might factor into um, helping their, helping their families cope. Right. Cause sometimes you have um, mixed, mixed status families. Right. So Mm -hmm. there's some of the older kids play, or in my experience have played like an important role, either fortunately or unfortunately, right. They, they kind of have to, they may be responsible for making medical decisions because they may be able to speak English, whereas their older parents may not. Absolutely. Or they're delegated to make, you know, medical decisions, as you were mentioning, Dr. Lisa, about maybe some, you know, rehab, rehab issues. And I was just wondering, how, how have you found that with, with patients in general on research and how that impacts the family dynamic and also may affect um, that that child, you know, that quote unquote child that's still a young adult or teenager, but still sort of taking on adult roles for their family. Mm-hmm. Right. It's really, it's really key. And I think the way that I see it in my patients is exactly as you said, where they feel, especially as teenagers, you know, find themselves doing a lot of the translating, not in our medical office. We, most of us either speak Spanish or if, for those who don't, we have um, interpreters. But as they are out in the world with their parents, whether it's shopping or for sure interfacing with the school system, we find that it's the older child who's kind of leading the way and helping the parent understand the system and um, translating, um, you know, things that the teacher may have said or sent home, which is a huge burden on kids. It, you know, we're asking like teenagers to adults basically um, and to make these decisions. Um, one of the um, really unfortunate side effects um, from that and other factors as well is that we've seen the suicide rate, particularly for Latina girls, really skyrocket over the last several years. Um, and there's some thinking about just the you know added burden of uh, cultural divide um, in the United States with increased expectations from their families and that sort of thing. So um, there is a lot of pressure, just as you said, for um, kids, particularly with families who may have um, lower English proficiency, um, but even still just with uh, cultural expectations and differences can be really tough for um, for kids and immigrant families. 
Absolutely. And I think we see that persist even outside of childhood. So when a child is in their 20s or 30s, they are, of course, still considered their parents' children. And in many cultures, there are certain topics that are taboo. And so just as Lonnery said, I think most hospitals now we are using translators um, and not family members to discuss sensitive medical topics. But Outside of that realm, um, for example, like uh, will formation, you know, end of life planning, um, there are in, in certain cultures, it's really not appropriate for children to discuss those things with their parents. But but p- these parents may rely on their children to transmit that information to them. So because they can't discuss it openly, there is a, a large disconnect between what the English speaking um, lawyer or legal professional is is suggesting or asking and what actually gets transmitted to the parent. And so therefore, it's not really their final wishes that are being put down on paper. So I think we see this um, lasting even outside of childhood, that children are being asked to, to carry that role. And as Lonray said, it can have really severe consequences because that, that is a heavy burden. One thing that we um, are both saying that I'm realizing is just remembering that what people are experiencing at any age um, will affect them, not just at that age, but you know, further on, the stress that um, a child or a teenager might um, encounter or might experience in in early childhood continues on to adult, adulthood. We may see, you know, worse um, health outcomes just due to that early exposure to stress um, and the burden that they're feeling um, to be that family's translator or guide um, as a child doesn't stop even when they become adults. And and as adults, right. you should be able to kind of be focused on managing yourself, your own life, your family. Um, but then for a lot of um, you know, immigrant adults, they're continuing to be sort of um, a, a, a guide to their parent, even in the older years. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely that thread throughout, you know, the entire life of someone who is an immigrant. You touched on, you know, many um, health as well as mental health, physical health challenges faced by um, immigrant uh, children and families, you know, throughout the continuum, you know, of the lifespan. But you also mentioned there's some there's there's this resilience as well, right? There are some protective factors that many um, immigrant fa- immigrant families actually bring to the table, having that experience. Their use, you know, their cultural their cultural background, their family family traditions, and I was wondering if you if you all could speak to that as well. I I think Lonray mentioning that was was just a great point, probably my favorite point so far. I think that is so true. It's very we have a real tendency sometimes to see outsiders or the other uh, as if that is uh, somehow inferior, and it's so true that there are many positive qualities of. Uh, of many different immigrant cultures that we should really uh, respect and admire and take advantage of in improving health globally. So I think um, absolutely tight family bonds are key. We know we know that that's true for everyone, that children who have access to multiple loving, stable adults do better. And when we know that there are multiple generations either in the home or close to the home um, who all have a vested interest in the well-being of that child, um, exactly as Lonnery said, the benefits of that, just as trauma can have far-reaching effects, uh, positive qualities can have far-reaching effects as well. And so the benefits of that will last that child well into adulthood and will equip them with skills to pass those on to their children. Um, So strong family bonds. Many immigrant families and cultures place a very high value on education, which is wonderful. Um, And even, you know, 
and how that is often um, manifested is in parents uh, being involved in their children's education in whatever school district they may happen to be, um, which is great. You know, seeing with uh, children receiving that message at home, even if their parents may, may have a language barrier, that is uh, definitely something that helps them ha- advance further than if they had not had it before. Um, strong faith communities also have that impact. Uh, many cultures do have a strong faith tradition. Um, and I think that these are all things that definitely positively impact uh, children who may have had other uh, strikes against them in different different spheres. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think um, other things that I see are that uh, people who um, have a strong tie just with their culture in general um, may feel that they have a pretty solid sense of identity, sort of feeling like you know where um, you and your family have come from, what the expectations are within a culture, um, uh, events and holidays and that sort of thing can give meaning um, to life and bring people together. Um, so even if you may feel that your culture is um, at times maybe even under attack, possibly um, within a larger culture, um, at least you do have the, the bonds of, of those with whom you relate. Um, and then even little things like nutrition, I, it's, you know, there's something called the immigrant paradox where um, the um, very first generation that comes to the United States sometimes is actually generally healthier than the average, um, average American, but then over time, um, the health starts to decline. And some of that may be changes in nutrition. Um, uh, I do see that families who are, you know, more recently arrived um, sometimes have, um, you know, health habits around like eating more vegetables and that sort of thing, or more fruits um, from their home countries. But, you know, in in our American culture, we just don't always make the time for that, don't always have access for that, or, you know, fast foods, those sort of things sometimes take precedence. So, um, so sometimes we may see a decline in health from those sorts of things. But, you know, but we try to do our best to encourage families to maintain some of those healthy habits that um, may have been better in their home country than what we tend to be able to do here. And what you just said, Laundry, was like, you know, really, really hit home for me because I'm first generation. My parents are are immigrants from Guyana. And you're talking about even, you know, as a as a young child, you know, growing up in Washington, D.C. and being like one of the only kids who who at the time was aware that their parents were immigrants. I did everything possible to kind of hide that fact mm-hmm. and become as acculturated as possible. Mm-hmm. And then also where I grew up in D.C., of course, almost on every corner, there was a McDonald's, mm-hmm. you know, some other some other franchise. So it was difficult. Right. To Even though I love the food, I mean, at home, I would eat it, but not you know, I'm not taking that to lunch. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And so you all are both moms. And I was wondering, I think my kids are a little bit different now. I think it sort of skipped a generation. My kids, my husband's family is from Haiti. And of course they, anytime they can eat, you know, my mom-in-law's rice and beans, (laughs) right. Or my mom makes curry chicken, Mm. Um, and Rhodey, it's like, okay, they're like, oh my like, gosh, I'm you're making all, me hungry. I'm, I was going to say, we'll join your kids. <laughs> <laughs> so and I'm just wondering, like, you know, as, you know, just pivoting a little bit, you know, your roles as, as moms, right? You're health professionals, but at the same time, you're, you know, you're an entering, in, interesting generation, right? You have kids um, that are either first or second generation. And how, how do you all navigate 
that immigrant um, experience or how has it been translated or implemented or how do you how do you find it working in your family? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, my children, so I, my parents were immigrants from India to Canada, and that's where I was born and raised. And then we immigrated to the United States. And so in that sense, my children are uh, um, our first generation having been born here. They're also biracial because my husband is Caucasian. He's Polish Italian. And so I actually, to, to add a positive note, I will say I completely understand what you were saying, Jackie. I feel like when we were younger, there was a little bit of a, you know, are people going to make fun of me if I bring Indian food to school? But I see in my, my son is a kindergartner and I, I volunteered in his class one day at lunch and was just so pleasantly surprised at the number of children that opened their lunches and had very visibly ethnic food and were eating them like sometimes with their hands in their native manner with like little things of condiments and no one batted an eye. And they cleaned their plates right next to someone eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I was just really touched by that. And I'm hoping that that was not just a one-off and that that was a sign that this generation is a little bit more in tune to the idea that we all have differences, that differences are to be celebrated, and that we should be proud of where we come from. I feel that um, for my kids, <clears throat> um, be, having ties to both their cultures is really helped by the fact that they're both sets of grandparents live uh, within driving distance, which is not something that I had when I was growing up. My grandparents spent most of their time in India. So, you know, I think that that's huge when, as we were talking about earlier, uh, immigrant families that have close ties between multiple generations. Interestingly, although my children are first generation, I see that very, that benefit very much for them. And I'm hoping that that is something that will carry through forever. Yeah, I completely agree. My family is from Nigeria. Um, I was born there and raised mostly here um, and my husband as well. So we, um, with both of our girls, have really tried to make it a point um, to make sure that they recognize you know, their culture. And um, my Yoruba, which is the language where my family's from, is terrible. I'll be the first to admit. So I've made it my husband's job <laughs> to, <laughs> to teach it to them. And, you know, so we try to incorporate that. I found like a Yoruba learning app that uh, my four-year-old does now and then to at least, you know, try to have keep them connected um, with the culture because it is really hard. Just as you said, Jackie, when you're a kid, what you want to do is just kind of like blend in and assimilate and be just like your friends. Um, but I think we are very fortunate, especially with where we live. And I agree, Lisa, just with even this time, this generation where um, diversity is embraced and is encouraged. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and I don't get a sense at all from my daughter, who's again, she's only four, the older one. Um, but I don't get a sense from her that she feels like she needs to hide you know she'll say sometimes even that she's from Nigeria and I'm like well yeah yeah that sounds great <laughs> you know? right. I mean you're definitely born in Maryland but you know? <laughs> um, but embrace it and I think I think it's it's great so um, it's not easy because when you're like surrounded by, you know, um, a pretty, um, like strong culture. I think the American culture definitely permeates into so many things. It's hard, I think, to, um, help your 
kids um, maintain that identity, but it is possible. Um, we also do have the benefit of having grandparents and you know great aunts and great uncles who um, are in our children's lives. And I completely agree that that is critical um, to um, maintaining that connection to, to the culture, to the language, to the food. Um, we do try to cook um, Nigerian, West African food um, as well. And in teaching, um, and similarly with, you see my four-year-old dip her fingers right into the food. Right. And the stew with the, you know, with, with, with the like pounded yam and all of that. And she'll, she'll just go to town with it. Um, and then, you know, when there's mac and cheese from like a, a pizza from a party at school or something, she'll enjoy that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so teaching them that it's fine to navigate, you know, between two different cultures and, um, and that's a strength and something to be enjoyed, I think is something that we try to focus on. Right. Yeah. I'm great. I was just going to say, yeah, exactly. I think, uh, I also want them to feel that it's good to be proud of being American as well. I want them to be proud of all of it, you know, that they don't have to choose one or the other. Right. Right. Exactly. I do think that sometimes uh, there is that feeling of like you're you're one or the other. You're right. Just, you're that. Um, but none of us really live in strict categories. Um, right. That you're you're more than one thing and um, and embracing all of all of you, um, all of those pieces of you, I think, is is something that we all really should do with our children, regardless of where we were born or where our kids were born. But I completely agree. Just helping them know that all of that is part of their identity. Right. So you talked about a a few things that you all do as parents to sort of help promote a positive self-identity and acceptance of, of, of your family background, culture, traditions. What other suggestions um, do you have? And then also Lisa, if you can also speak to um, maybe we talk a little bit more about if there's some unique, other unique things or recommendations you have for um, individuals who are seeking um, rehabilitation services, and if there are any special tips or challenge, well, I should say tips to kind of overcome some challenges that may be faced by um, immigrant families. Sure. Yeah. So in terms of um, rehabilitation needs specifically, obviously it very much depends on the particular diagnosis, but we always recommend for parents who are looking for care for their underage children, first connect with your pediatrician. So this is assuming that if you if you are connected with a pediatrician, always go to them first because they will be able to link you with resources that are specific to your geographic area. If, uh, if a family is not connected with a pediatrician, then their child's school or the health department are other options. And depending on the type of therapy that they need. So if we're talking about physical, uh, physical rehabilitation needs, um, Always, we always advise parents to ask for a home exercise program, an HEP, and to do that faithfully with your child. So if, if a child has some physical rehabilitation needs, something where they're going to require PT for a certain amount of time, the best thing that a parent can do is to make it part of their routine to do that home exercise program with their child every day at the same time in their home um, with the plan to do it indefinitely. At some point, you may come come to reach a point where the child no longer needs it. And if so, that's that's great. That's a win. That's a success. But plan to do it indefinitely. 
so that the child knows that that's part of their routine and that's what's going to help them um, catch up, catch up to their peers and be able to take advantage of, of all the things that they're going to want to do in life. If a child believes that it's optional, um, then then it's just much more likely, uh, much less likely to be successful. So the more faithfully that parents can model that for their children, the better. And then other types of therapy that they may need. So if, if the rehabilitation therapy that they need is more in the area of speech therapy, speech language pathology, um, some of the there there are a lot of things that parents can do that don't require special equipment or or special training, and that's that's really empowering to know that we as parents can do that on our own. We don't need a degree. Um, one of the best things they can do is read with their kids. And again, we acknowledge there are many parents in the immigrant community who may have language barriers, may have literacy barriers, but even sitting with your children while your children page through a picture book talking to them about the book, about what they think is happening, what might happen on the next page, getting them library books, which, you know, of course that we don't need to pay for those. Um, and, uh, and even allowing very carefully curated screen time that can also help with speech issues. Um, it, I think it's important to remember that in terms of speech, practice makes perfect and the practice itself doesn't have to be perfect, but it's more the effort of putting in those, those hours, um, that'll really pay off for your child in the future. And I think a point that Lisa made, um, is specifically about rehab medicine really can, could be said about everything that we do with children. So, which is about consistency and taking the time. Um, the I think even thinking very generally about the unique needs of immigrant children, I'd say that with any other child, like consistently, they need to feel safe and and loved. Um, and depending on the child's age, um, that you know may need to be like limiting access to news and social media, for example, if there are things that are happening. Um, that's some of the advice that we gave to families during the time of family separation as that was in the news 24-7. Not that we need to shut out those um, those difficult things, but for a young child that may bring fear and confusion in a way that's mm-hmm. difficult for a parent to sort of explain. And for some, they do need to have things explained to them and maybe just in more simple terms. Um, we also encourage parents to express that you're doing all that you can to keep your child safe, to let them know that you love them. Um, and Lisa talked about reading to kids. I think that's so important. And sometimes I tell parents showing a book to your child. So maybe um, for those who may have um, lower um, proficiency with reading, um, even in their own language, some have lower um, proficiency with reading. Um, But as she said, just having them kind of go through the book and talking about the pictures, uh, keeping to routines, I think is also very important. Uh, So not to, it, it doesn't have to be exactly to the minute. And we all know that these days, um, our routines have completely been flipped upside down. <laughs> um, but doing the best that we can to make sure that kids are at least going to bed at about the same time, having their meals at about the same time each day, having some free playtime, um, you know, social time um, to um, to really kind of get out that energy. And there's learning even that happens in playtime. So um, I think there are a lot of different ways we can think about sort of the um, the unique needs of immigrant children. Um, and in some ways too, just remembering that it's a lot of it is the same as with any other child. Lonry, I wanted to follow up on um, your, your discussion about the unique, unique times that we're in that our schedules may be kind of topsy-turvy. And wanted to touch base about, you know, since we're going through the COVID pandemic crisis right now, 
what unique challenges and our vulnerabilities are faced by immigrant families given this current um, health crisis? Yeah, so I think we are all experiencing you know, a lot of disruptions around kids not being able to go to school or daycare or businesses being closed and people not being able to work. Um, and with immigrant families, I, uh, many of those things will just be further magnified. Um, so I talked earlier about social determinants of health, so things like food insecurity or housing insecurity. Um, we definitely expect and are already seeing more of that with immigrant families, um, particularly those who are maybe lower income, who depend on hourly jobs, who um, now are not working. Um, the federal government is trying to uh, put some patches into this issue with these gigantic aid packages. But one thing that I think is important for people to know is that not everybody will be able to benefit from from these even even the two trillion dollar package, um, it does leave out some families who are non citizens, um, even including some families where the parents may be legal permanent residents or families with kids who were born in the U.S. and are U.S. citizens. Um, there are some strict requirements around um, the stimulus checks that will be sent out, for example, or even getting um, medical care um, through the expansion in Medicaid for increasing COVID testing and treatment um, to make sure that we um, that we you know bring down the transmission. There are still families, again, even those who in some states have legal permanent residency that will not be able to benefit um, who will be excluded from these. So um, so I am worried because as we all know, you know, this virus does not discriminate, right? So we every community, every family is being impacted in some way. Uh, so I would um, hope that the things that we in our communities and in our local and federal governments are doing um, really would be broad reaching and helping all of those who are being affected. Right. And I think this is an example where uh, the suffering of some really impacts us all. You know, so we're seeing now where inadequate health insurance coverage can really affect mortality for everyone, whether you have health insurance coverage or not, because if people are being told to avoid emergency departments and call their PCPs if they're symptomatic, that leaves undocumented immigrants or other people who don't have PCPs in trouble because now what are they supposed to do? So now they're at risk of transmitting. And people who don't want to draw attention to themselves and don't have the means to pay for testing or treatment will not pursue COVID testing and therefore will increase the chance that they'll inadvertently spread the virus within and outside their communities. So I think that this is an example of how we're really all connected and you know, elevating some really elevates all of us because we're seeing now how this can have disastrous effects for people far away um, from those that are actually uninsured. Um, you know, we're all we're all one human race, and I think we're seeing that very clearly now. And in terms of COVID, too, you know, there's also the issue of increased hate crimes against Asian American communities, which is impeding their ability to leave their homes and obtain groceries or other necessities. And it's pretty unique to this pandemic um, specifically. But, you know, we see that it has uh, that there are a lot of different ways that it's negatively impacting um, these communities. So before we head out, I definitely want to share with our listeners that both um, you, Lisa, and Lonre have an upcoming podcast where um, listeners can actually hear more of the wonderful information um, conversation that you all will have. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about um, your upcoming podcast, Health and Home with the Hippocratic Hosts. 
Sure. So yes, exactly. Health and home with the Hippocratic hosts. And and our podcast is really two physician moms and longtime friends who want to help navigate the intersection of health, parenting, and life. And we're looking forward to chatting about topical medical issues such as COVID-19, um, but also wider themes, including things like work-life balance, kids and technology, our favorite educational book recommendations, healthy eating, um, and much more. And so we really hope that people will tune in and feel like they're getting a breakdown of important topics from two doctor friends that they can trust. Yeah, absolutely. We're really excited about it. Uh, Lisa and I have been friends since we were teenagers, <laughs> <laughs> which I will not give any more specific numbers, but it was a long time ago. Um, so I, you know, so I think we bring our um, experience as friends and as doctors and as moms. And, and as she said, we have a wide range of topics that we're looking to talk with people about. And I think Jackie, your um, listeners in particular might be interested to know that we will be doing um, episodes on things like how to talk to kids about race or, um, mm-hmm. you know, the modern immigrant experience in the United States and that sort of thing. So, um, so look out for the Hippocratic hosts. We will be launching sometime soon. And, um, and as Lisa said, this was not our original plan, um, but <laughs> our very first episode will be on COVID-19 and helping people people um, get through, you know, how do you sort of break through the myths and find find the facts and be able to do all of that without getting overwhelmed um, by this issue? Thank you so much. I think people are definitely going to benefit from your new show. You all are wonderful um, individuals, physicians, moms, and I'm so I'm so happy and honored to have had um, had you have you join us um, for this conversation today. Uh, Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much. It was our pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week on What is Black podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And for more information about the podcast, our blogs, and subscribe to our upcoming newsletter, go to our website at whatisblack.co. As always, subscribe to the show to catch every new episode. And don't forget to leave us a review so we can continue to bring you fresh content. Until next time, thank you for listening. 